0: So, good evening. We're almost there. We're getting there with this Doctrines of Grace study. We started into the first major section on total depravity. The second major section has been on unconditional election. And once we finish, then I think we're overall about halfway through. I know it's kind of a long study, but we're, we were in this for the long haul from the, uh, from the beginning. But here at this concept or this, this study on election in general, we've spent a lot of time on it. We're almost done. But before we finish, before we move on to the issues of the atonement, like limited atonement, unlimited atonement, that's the next one up to bat. That's on deck right now. Before we get there, there's a few related issues to election that we still have to talk about, left to discuss, that are worth talking about. We could, I guess, just move on, but we're trying to uncover most stones here in this study. And so one of the remaining important issues to be addressed is that of reprobation. It's called reprobation. If you've never heard of it before, well, you're going to. It's what we're going to study tonight. Reprobation concerns God's relationship with the unelect, those who are not saved and chosen. And by definition, if God has chosen some people to receive grace so as to be saved, well, in one way or another, he's not chosen others. Others were just left left not chosen. Whether it was active or passive, we're going to study all that, but obviously just the act of choosing some and not others, he's making some decision about those who were not chosen. The mere existence of a category of people known as the elect leaves behind another category of people known as the unelect. Like think back to school, gym class, team captain, choosing five people for his team out of ten, and he chooses five, they're on his team. The five left over, are just the leftovers, you know, the, the other team, they're just the unelect. And so the fact that some people are chosen for salvation and some are not, that, the, the fact of that is pretty clear, pretty straightforward. It's part and parcel with the definition of election that some are unelect. So we have this category of unelect. But it leads to questions about these people who were not chosen. Some questions we want to address here, like, how, how did God make his choice? of the unelect. Was it actually a choice? He he really chose them actively or was it just passively he passed over them and they just were left over? What is God's relationship to the unelect? Did God actually make them unbelieving? I mean, since they were not chosen, did God actively create them for the sole purpose of being destroyed and being objects of his wrath or not? And is God's reprobation unconditional? Remember we talked about God's election being unconditional? Was his reprobation likewise unconditional or not? Did God actively predestine the unelect for damnation, or did he merely pass over the unelect? We're going to find out. i to give these to David. Now, it's worth pointing out here at the outset that, you know, the same questions and the same objections people have concerning election, all the same ones come up with reprobation. Because you can see how, obviously, the issues are related here. In fact, Arminians, they often, though, they concentrate their attacks against Calvinism right here, oftentimes with the doctrine of reprobation. It's because it's easily warped, twisted, misconstrued. They build up a straw man argument and view of God that turns God into some monster, and that straw man is easily torn down, and so they can quickly write off, like, reprobation. I mean, that's not true, clearly, so election must not be true either and that's often how it goes. So you hear this claim that you know Calvinists believe in this God who takes perfectly good people and arbitrarily makes them evil just so that he can damn them forever. And which of course is not true, but so the straw man goes. Now to be sure, this this side of it, reprobation, God's relationship to the unelect. This probably is the most hated aspect of all of Calvinism. It boils down to this fact though, for by our minions at least. You know, you have a loving God. He has the power to save everybody. He's got the power, he has the ability, but not all are saved. We all believe that. He's got the power to save all, not all are saved. How do you make sense of that? And he's loving. So how do you how does that all fit together? How do you how do you explain that? You just can't get around the fact of it. But for Arminians, their entire system was designed and created to explain that, and really to explain it away. They're trying to uphold the love of God. We, we've talked about this, that God, you know, is a loving God. He really wants to save everybody, but his hands are tied, they believe, by, by our will. God is, is bound by our will. He won't work against our will. He made us creatures with free will, and he can't work against that. So even if we choose to reject him and go to hell forever, he's going to respect that decision and and let us go. So God is not, in the end, through all that we've studied, we found they don't really believe that God is actively destining anyone for salvation or otherwise. He's just responding to us and our will. And So God is off the hook, so it goes, of really damning anyone. People damn themselves and a loving God. He wants to save everybody, but he just can't. Well, we've already covered plenty of time the problems with the Armenian understanding of election but it all applies here to reprobation so it's just worth quickly repeating by way of a, a brief recap Armenians are in the same boat namely that their God is still on the hook for, for damning billions of people they just can't escape the fact that because God chose to create this world the fact that he's the creator he made everything and he know he knew full well what would happen I mean, they make a big deal out of foreknowledge, right? So God certainly knew what was going to happen. He knew billions of people would willingly choose not to believe in him and sentence themselves to hell. Yet he still chose to create that world. It means he's just as responsible as if he had just planned it to begin with. The fact that he, you know, he didn't have to make this world, as we point out, he could have made a world in which he foresaw everybody would freely choose him of their own free will and thereby be saved. He could have done that, but he didn't. I mean, if God knew someone was not going to believe in him and thereby perish forever, why not simply not create that person and spare them eternal damnation? Like, just don't create that person. All the unelect, just don't create them and spare them eternal damnation. Why wouldn't you do that? See, the fact that he still created this world, he's still responsible as if he had planned it all to begin with. They're in the exact same boat. And a little quote here... You know, for the sake of time, we won't read it, but just for your own edification, a, a excerpt here from Rein Botner's classic work on the Reformed doctrine of predestination. It's all recap, so we don't really need to go over it. But I figured I'd include it for you. Your own edification, you can read later. Just a good way of summarizing how you know they're they're in the same boat. The problem with them, though, is that to try and get out of it, they just diminish God's sovereignty, God's power. God's foreknowledge. They have to diminish something about God to explain it. Whereas Calvinists, they just simply understand look, God is supreme. He's planned all things. He's purposed all things according to his will. And you know what? He's still loving, even though all are not saved. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly fair. And he's still loving. And scripture explains all that consistently. We don't need to import man's philosophy to try and reason it away to make the Bible pleasant or acceptable to the natural mind the Bible's never going to be acceptable to the natural man or the natural mind we don't need to accommodate the world or even you know the casual Christian per se for us here especially like we just want to know what the Bible says that's that's good enough for us just tell us what the Bible says unfiltered unadulterated we don't need it watered down or, or changed by philosophy to make it sound more reasonable more pleasing just just tell me what what the Bible says and we'll leave it we'll leave it at that we'll leave man's philosophy at the door so we've done that in large part regarding election we spent almost a couple months here on, on just election but we're gonna tonight do that again with reprobation that same thing just let's just study the Bible here what does the Bible say about God's relationship to those who weren't chosen who weren't elect before the foundation of the world what does the Bible say about them How does God relate to them and and so forth? So we're going to get into that tonight. Yeah. If God condemned everybody to death, he just. Yeah, that's right. If God were to condemn everyone and save no one, he'd be perfectly righteous, perfectly just. And that's a thought to keep in mind that we'll revisit as well. Now, let's start with just a... Some basic you know, definition, explanation of reprobation. I imagine that for some of you, it's actually a new concept. Maybe you've never heard of it before. It's used you know, mostly in, I guess, theological circles, so it could be new to you. And so basic definition. Again, it, it, it's all about God's relationship to the unelect. Election, we're normally talking about his relationship to the elect, obviously. And so first, election, by way of review, can be defined as God's decision in eternity past to set his special love, his unconditional love, on some people according to his free will and to save them by his grace. It's unconditional election as we've studied. Now on the flip side, reprobation may be defined as God's decision in eternity past to pass over others, leaving them in their sinful state and punishing them accordingly per his perfect justice. It's it's a decision one way or another. The decision to save is clear. And whether it's active or passive, we'll be setting that later. But just in the mere fact of not choosing to save these people when he could have, or, or elect these people when he could have, he was making some sort of decision about the rest. And we phrase it here they were passed over. They were left in their sinful state and punished accordingly as sinners receiving the Just penalty of sin. Now, we've referenced several times the Westminster Confession of Faith, a very classical and reformed statement of faith. And so, in chapter 3, their article 7 concerns reprobation. Just just for your edification, throw it out there. Can't hurt, right? They, they, They put it this way. They say, The rest of mankind, God was pleased. According to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. It's it's wordy and that's just kind of how it goes. There's a lot in there, but it's actually quite good and we won't go into it right now, but you'll see as we go on throughout tonight how the bits and pieces mentioned in there uh, they all, they all are, are pretty accurate, and we'll see them expounded throughout. But, you know, they put it the same way that God, according to his will, he passes by some, and he leaves them in sin and gives them the just wrath due to sin, in short. Like we said before, the fact of election necessitates some form of reprobation. If the elect are those whom God chose and predestined unto salvation, by definition, God was making some decision and not choosing the rest. The fact that the unelect were not chosen to receive salvation by grace, it does mean their fate was sealed. In one way or another, the fact that they weren't elect and God was going to leave them, and, and since we know about total inability, man can't save himself, God was, effect, in effect, sealing them in that fate. And the unelect have no, you know, in God's perspective, chance of being saved. So to speak, God had the power to save them all, but he passed them by. Just imagine going to a dog pound. You're going to adopt a dog, and there's there's 10 dogs there. They've been left there for a long time. In fact, you walk in right as they're about to be put down. They've just been there too long, and they're going to be put to sleep. If they're not adopted, that's what's going to happen. And so you decide you're going to save two dogs so you go in there and you adopt two of them you just pick them whatever pleases you and you you save two and those two dogs they're elect you've chosen them you have you have saved them by your will the other eight though they're they're left behind and your act of choosing those two you have passed over the other eight and you have sealed them in their doom you have condemned them but you can see though and we'll see this really unfolded later there's a difference, though. The act of choosing is not quite the same as the act of passing by. You you weren't actively condemning them. You didn't have to. They were already condemned just by their circumstances. And, and there is actually a difference between God's act of choosing to save some and his act of passing by. They're not parallel. They're actually different, but we'll see that more and more. Either way, though, when people hear about this, that God passes some people over, even though he has the power to save all, they most often respond that, that's just not fair. We've already covered a whole, a couple of lessons responding to those objections. Not fair, not just. Again, just remember, everybody's in that boat. The Armenian is in the same boat that you know, God had the power to save all and create a world where all are saved, and he didn't. So that's not fair. They have to answer the same objection. Just remember that. And even though we dealt with the objections, just point out a few things here. Just primarily remember... All those who are not chosen for salvation, they still get what they deserve. And they're still getting precisely what they deserve. God's being perfectly just and fair in condemning them for their guilty sinners. Reprobation does not mean that God finds men good and just. Then that arbitrarily decides to make them evil and sinful just so that he can judge them and be glorified in his wrath. That, that's, not, that's not what it is. It's not like God found Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, he's a good guy. But I'm going to harden him and make him evil so I can be glorified through my wrath. That That's not the picture. That's not how it works. Rather, reprobation involves God finding people. They're already sinners. They're already evil. They're already depraved and wicked and lost. That We've studied that with original sin and total depravity. And so God just lets them be. He leaves them to their own devices. He hands them over to their sin withholding his restraining grace, which in effect hardens them and seals their judgment. People have trouble with this only when they start with the assumption that people are good, that people are in general good. It's like the cute, innocent puppies. How could God pass over innocent people, good people? That just seems so cruel and, and harsh that God could harden people and condemn them when they're innocent. That seems unfair. But when you rightly understand original sin, total depravity, limited ability, I hope you're appreciating more and more why we started with those topics because they really lay the foundation for the whole study. And if you neglect those, well, it's no wonder why you get this later stuff wrong. But you realize that no, no one is good. No one's just before God. None are good, all deserve judgment, all deserve death, all deserve to be passed over. None deserve to be pardoned. If anyone receives a pardon, that's simply a marvel of God's mercy. The fact that the left, the the le- uh, the rest rather are left to pay for their sins, that's just justice. God's not being unfair to them or or even unkind. He's he's giving them exactly what they deserve. It's God's prerogative to show mercy on whomever he wants. But it's not like God is creating fresh evil inside of people and then making them pay for it. That's not reprobation. That's not Calvinism. Although you might hear people say that against Calvinism. That's the straw man argument against it. That's just not true. You know, I gave an impromptu illustration last week that uh, it's worth repeating as well because it puts, it puts it well. You know, we talk about you know imagine a bus full of 10 children dangling over a cliff and you have the power to save them all. You have the ability to, to rescue them all. In fact, imagine all 10 are your children and you have the ability to save them all and you, you save five, you let the other five go. I mean, that That's, that's crazy. You, you'd be a terrible parent. You might even be prosecuted. That's cruel, that's harsh, that's unloving. What kind of a parent would do that? You have the chance to save all 10 of your kids and you don't. That, that sounds terrible. And that's, a lot, that's how a lot of people conceive of election and reprobation, which is why they reject it, because they can't stomach such a cruel God. There's no way that's, that's real or that's true. And so they just reject it. But you see, that's not an accurate representation or illustration of election and reprobation. Instead... Like we mentioned a little bit last week in passing, just imagine a a bus now filled with 10 convicted murderers, rapists, and pedophiles dangling over the cliff. In fact, all 10 of them were on the way to death row where they're all going to be executed for their crimes. And so that bus is dangling over the cliff. How do you feel now? Are you as concerned as before? I mean, would you be terribly troubled if all 10 of them perished? Probably not. Some of you might even be thinking like, well, you know, let them go. Let them—they're go. going to get what they deserve. They were going to perish anyway, justly for their evil crimes. If any—if any were saved, it would just be an act of pure mercy and grace. They—they they certainly didn't deserve it. They—they they all deserve to go down off that cliff. And then this is a much better depiction of election and reprobation. I mean, still not perfect, but it shows how all those who are chosen are merely recipients of God's mercy. And he's free to give that out to whomever he wishes, all, some, or none. The whole point of grace is it's unowed. That that's the whole point. You're like, you don't deserve this. That's why it's unmerited favor. But the rest that aren't chosen, they just get what they deserve. They did the crime, they're guilty sinners, and God will just deal with them justly, perfectly just. Nobody has a claim on God's grace. And everyone who perishes. They perish because of their own sin, their own sinful choices and actions. They're still responsible. Now, hopefully this is starting to make some sense, starting to click for you a little bit. At least maybe you're tracking. It's a lot, though, and with this concept of reprobation, there's there's more to say, more questions to answer. But to continue and to help, let's just start diving into some passages that teach this, that explain this, answer some questions. And of course, the most prominent passage that teaches this stuff, reprobation, is Romans chapter 9. So why don't you open your Bibles there now to Romans chapter 9. I mentioned a while ago we'd be back here, we'd get into this stuff back to Romans 9, and well, here we, here we are, back in Romans 9. Earlier we talked about that Pharaoh stuff, and we skipped over it, but we won't now. We're going to jump right in. Romans chapter 9... Primarily, verses 14 through 24 is where we're going to focus our time. Now, if you remember, earlier we had studied a bit of this. In the chapter, on Paul taught on unconditional election, using Jacob and Esau's illustrations. God graciously, yet unconditionally chooses some for salvation. Paul knew that people would object to that and say, that's not that's not fair, that's not just. So he anticipates these objections and he answers these objections in verses 14 through 24. Now, when we made a pass through these, we're going to make another pass through these verses, this time focusing on reprobation. And you'll you see a first basic point. It's in your notes. God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. We focus on the mercy part, but the hardening part, is, is here too. I mean, it's just what the text says. So let's read it and then talk about it. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. This is right on the heels of him talking about how before Jacob and Esau were born, Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In these verses, the emphasis is on the mercy side. God is free to show that mercy to whomever he wills. It's not up to man, it doesn't depend on man who runs or wills, but it's up to God who wills. It's it's his free mercy and grace to give out. It's an error to presume on God's grace. As if God gives grace to some, he must give grace to all. No, it's truly his to, to give out or not. God is under no obligations. And so we, we covered all that. But now verse seventeen, eighteen focuses on the, the flip side of that, which is the, the hardening side of that. Verse 17, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Just as God is free to give mercy to whomever he wishes, he's free to withhold mercy and give justice instead. Uh, Just justice instead. Pharaoh here now becomes the Ultimate case study of God's reprobation. He's a great, he's a perfect actually case study of God's reprobation, God passing over. And th- let's talk about this more. Let's let's pick on Pharaoh, use him as our example here. Paul does it, and we can as well. Notice first, it says here that God was working out his purposes in and through Pharaoh. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says the Lord has made everything for its own purposes, even the wicked for the day of evil. Which just means everything is made for God's purposes, even the wicked for their day. That You know, the, the day that Pharaoh did a lot of evil against Israel. That's part of God's plan. God raised him up for that purpose that his, his name might be magnified through Pharaoh's deeds. Uh, Joey, a question or
1: comment there? Uh, it was more of a comment. It just, response to the idea of reformation here. Mm-hmm. But when I, every time I've come across Romans 9, when I read it, when it says, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated, talk about how God, that hate, it's not necessarily like a, like a, like a burning hatred. I it was told it's um, something to do with like a God, uh, more of a choosing aspect, I guess, in that respect. But here, when, <coughs> 14, when Paul says, What shall we say that there is no injustice with God? from my perspective, I see how Paul's anticipating a a response to that as, well, that's not fair. And that's like the whole point where if God here is choosing two separate nations, people don't seem to have an issue with God electing Israel and not electing other nations. They go, oh, okay, that's totally cool. But here Paul's anticipating somebody responding, saying that's not fair. Mm -hmm. So if Paul's talking about nations here, I can't see that being being the being the conversation because every person I've ever talked to about the discussion of election has this response. Well that's not fair. So that's why when I read this I only see it as two elect two elect people, not nations at that point. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, well I mean nations is part of it. It's in the context because he's talking about Israel as a chosen nation, explaining with their hardening. So there is a national element to it that Jacob inherited the promises by grace. But at the same time, remember, nations are comprised of individuals and you can't separate the two. A nation or the church is not an empty class. It's comprised of individuals who themselves are elect inside of it. So yeah, good comments. I get what you're saying. Uh, And I think earlier in the chapter there is more of a national bent, but it, you're right in the sense that after talking about Jacob and Esau, he makes it a personal issue. And he's talking, he goes on to use them as an illustration of personal election. And he almost goes on a tangent about election. He doesn't actually return to the national issues about national Israel and their salvation till, till uh, largely chapter 11 to 10 and 11. So, yeah, that's why 9 is so relevant to personal election and reprobation because that's what Paul does. He, he goes off a bit of tangents just explaining election and reprobation in general. And he'll later come back around in chapter 10, 11 to reapply it to the nation of Israel. So national stuff is not divorced from it, but it's also right to see him teaching on personal election and reprobation as well, which again, they're, they're one. They're not one of the same, but they, they go together because a nation is just a collection of individuals. But yeah, no, good stuff, good comments. Now, it mentions verse 17. He says, For this purpose I raised you up. Speaking of Pharaoh, what's the purpose? We may remember that the Exodus. The Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And the Exodus was a major event where you have these powerless Jews, these slaves, yet they defied the mighty Egyptian empire. The Jews were to receive no credit, though, because their God did it. God did it on their behalf. They just went along with it. I mean, God delivered them with his mighty arm. In fact, the Pharaoh was vehemently opposed to letting the Jews go, and each time he wouldn't let them go. It just gave God a greater occasion to display his might through the ten plagues and eventually the exodus itself, thereby magnifying his name against all the, the whole army that chased after them. Still, Israel went free, and that just magnifies God's name. So the, the purpose for this was the magnification of God's name and glory. In a way you can think of it this way, regarding Pharaoh, there's no superheroes without supervillains. And Pharaoh, God raised him up as like a supervillain, that God could be the superhero of his own story. God does all things for his own glory, rightly so. And he raised up Pharaoh to oppose Israel, that his own power and glory might be magnified. But wait there, you hear this, and you might think, wait, does that mean God made pharaoh into a bad guy just so he could raise him up and knock him down easily and take a victory lap no but that's not the picture pharaoh did fit into god's plan yes his role was ordained according to god's purposes yes but god did not make pharaoh evil or make him do evil so that god could glorify his name and so you're going to wonder, what is, okay, what's, what's up with the hardening then? What's the nature of this hardening, which is spoken of in verse 18? What does it mean to say that God hardened Pharaoh? Tangent, but a worthy tangent, so we're going to do it. Number, uh, the second point here, reprobation involves God hardening the wicked. Reprobation involves God hardening the wicked. But that definitely needs to be explained, and so we're, we're going to do that uh, right now. Do you have a, a hand jar or just, no? Okay. So there are other examples of God hardening the hearts of the wicked. Just in, in brief, I'll read some of them for you. Deuteronomy 2:30. say uh, Moses mentions, Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through His land, for the Lord your God hardened His spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as He is today, talking about as they were on their way to the promised land. Joshua 11, 20, the conquest, you have all the nations in the land. And Joshua eleven twenty 20 says, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle, in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. A quick side note, remember about the conquest, the nations who were living in the land before Israel. They're actually super wicked pagan nations and the conquest was partly God giving Israel the land but also partly God judging these super wicked nations through Israel as being his sword and God it says we'll talk about what it means but it says the Lord hardened their hearts that they would not flee or they would not join up with Israel but they met them in battle that they could be destroyed and wiped out First Samuel 2.25 speaks of Eli's sons It says, If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Eli was trying to reason with his sons to change their ways. He had two super wicked sons, if you remember, in the days before Samuel. But they wouldn't listen. And it gives us a little insight that part of the reason they wouldn't listen is, it it was not part of the plan. God desired to put them to death and they would soon thereafter die. Then you have 2 Thessalonians 2.11 talks about the tribulation and people alive in the tribulation who come to follow the beast, the Antichrist. Why? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.11 says, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false and not be saved in that tribulation time God, it's unchecked time of Satan and demons and the restrainer is removed and those people will just be deceived uh, and they will all come to worship the beast believe in in the antichrist and God gives them over to do that through removing the restrainer and then there's even Romans 11 flip the page to Romans 11 verse 7 Here, you know, like Joey mentioned, this is actually where he comes back, talks about the nation of Israel. And in fact, they too were hardened. You know, once the Egyptians were hardened while the Jews went free. Now the Jews themselves are being hardened. Verse 7, he says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were, what? Hardened. He says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says that their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them, that their eyes be darkened and see not and and bend their backs forever. So you can go back to chapter nine. Israel themselves were in a state of being hardened. They weren't chosen. And so therefore they were hardened. Now, understand, we we still have to explain some things, that when God hardens the wicked, he's not making people evil. God never makes people evil to do evil or or to be evil. God is not creating fresh evil in a person's heart. He's not changing their natures from good to bad. Rather, the wicked, they're already found by God in a state of evil, sin, rebellion, unbelief, and depravity. Rather, God hardens such people by simply leaving them in their condition and removing his restraining grace. In effect, hands them over to their sins, which by nature have a hardening effect. If you lived in unchecked sin, like you're just nothing's holding you back. That sin will harden you. God doesn't need to harden them. Their sin will do it by itself. It's just part of the process. Sin kills the conscience over time and hardens. And if if a person is not held back and restrained, excuse me, either by God's intervention or by society or their family or whatever there is, they will be hardened. And you, you all can attest to that, I'm sure, with people you know. So God hands them over to their sins, which by nature has a hardening effect. And in doing this, God ratifies a person's unbelief. He, they're already rebels, and he basically permits them to carry on in their rebellion, handing them over, and in effect, by not intervening to, to change them, he could. By not doing so, he seals them in their doom. You're a rebel, you're going to stay a rebel, and you'll be judged as a rebel. But understand, the person is still to blame for their condemnation. They're the rebel they chose to not believe, to sin against God. They're still responsible for all their sins. God did not make them evil. God did not make them do evil. They're still accountable for their choices and actions. Now again, you hear this caricature of the cruel God of Calvinism who you know, he refuses to save people, even though they desperately want to be saved, but they're not the elect, so he just he, he's not going to save them. And that's just bogus. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Calvinism teaches. God saves all who cry out to him. All who believe will be saved. It's just that Calvinists rightly understand that Scripture also teaches that the only people who do cry out to be saved are those who were first chosen and called and changed so that they would cry out. Otherwise, nobody would cry out to be saved. That That's the real difference. But God did not choose to inter, uh, intervene in their lives for those who were not For those who don't cry out uh, and they're not saved because God did not choose them, he's still doing them no wrong. He's doing them no wrong. They they chose their own sin and unbelief, and God didn't intervene. He left them to their sin, but they're judged justly and accordingly. Now, take it a little bit further, though. It's also helpful to study the means by which God hardens the hearts of the wicked, which effectively seals them in judgment you will see how God, he does not actively make people evil. His relationship to those you might call the reprobates or the unelect is one of handing them over to their sinful desires such that they harden themselves. And this is taught in scripture. That's why we take it. So let's let's go on a little further and a section here of how God hardens the hearts of the wicked. It give you a further understanding, a deeper understanding. And you've got some notes here. And you see Romans 1, uh, turn there. How does God harden the wicked, those who are rebels, who were not chosen, that he leaves them to their sin and seals them in their doom? How how does he do that? Well, first, by withholding his restraining grace. He put this alternately just handing them over to their sin, to their own depravity, their own sinful desires. This taught very clearly in Romans 1, actually. You have man viewed as you know, the sum of humanity. Verse 18, these are men in unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth of God is known. They know God. It's evident to them. God has made it evident. His existence, his attributes, his power, they know it, but they suppress it. They deny it. They exchange it. This is fallen man. This is what fallen man does from, from the beginning. They know God, but they don't honor him as God. Verse 21. They profess to be wise, but they become become fools and they become idolaters. This is humanity. So what does God do? He lets them have it. Verse 24. And you guys know this. We've, We've studied this often enough here at the church in general. But verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Notice... His first step was not to give them over. He revealed himself. You you could say, so to speak, they had a chance. God was known. He was made evident. But as their rebellion was likewise made known and their response of rejection was clear, over time, God handed them over to the lust of their heart. This is worked out in general in in the sea of humanity. And it's also worked out in, in certain individuals' lives. And and we know these people today. These are those who would call the extremely depraved, and their sin is no longer in check. And it's because this process has repeated itself. God, first, verse 24, gives them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He hands them over to their sinful desires. Also, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. He actually even mentions homosexuality here. He further just hands them over to the the even darker aspects of their their fleshly desires. In verse 28, a third time it mentions he gives them over. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. And he goes on to give a list. And it's just, you can say, almost a final handing over. Look, people like this can still be saved. Right? If God wills, he can change those whom he wills. And we all once were like this to some measure. But this does stand to show how God hardens people. He just hands them over to their sin. He gives them over. Now, we talk about Pharaoh. This is actually even evident in Pharaoh's case. Paul picks on Pharaoh in Romans 9 as a case study. And God hardened Pharaoh. And that's true. But how did God harden Pharaoh? Turn back to, uh, you know, keep a finger in Romans if you like, and turn back to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. And it's in your notes. We'll just look at one passage, but when you study Exodus and the ten plagues, that whole episode, you'll see the the divine perspective mentioned several times. And it will say... I think it's told eight times, maybe a few more, pardon me, where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's kind of a refrain, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. He did that on purpose. He hardened his heart so he wouldn't let the people go, that God could send more plagues which further magnify God's name. And so it says that over and over again. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But at the same time, I think I think equally eight times, I could be mistaken there, but at the same time, all throughout Exodus, in these early chapters, you have a, another refrain where it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He hardened his own heart. Uh, which is it? Is it a contradiction? Well, obviously, no. It's, it's a both and. These are complementary truths. How do they fit together? Well, just by way of example, Exodus chapter 9, look at verse 34. This is after one of the plagues, and it says, but when Pharaoh saw... That the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Look at the next verse, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Right. If God wanted to, he could snap his fingers. The Jews are free. But he created this plan with, you know, Pharaoh would be hardened and not let them go ten times. So you have these ten supernatural signs and plagues, each one highlighting God's power and glory. But which is it? Like it just said, Pharaoh and his servants hardened their own hearts. But then God says to Moses, hey, I hardened their hearts. Which is it? Well, the fact that it says both leads us to believe that Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. And God God effectively hardened him by just leaving him in his sin, by not intervening. Pharaoh was already a sinner. He was not a good guy. He was a wicked, extremely evil, pagan king. And God wasn't actively doing anything to Pharaoh because he didn't have to. Do you see that? He didn't actually have to do anything to Pharaoh to make him not let the people go. He was already at that point in the hardness of his own heart. God did not make him choose evil. God did not make him do evil. Pharaoh already had that in his heart. And so that's why Exodus says just as often that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so the picture we get is that God permitted Pharaoh's sins and hardened him by leaving him to his own sinful desires. God is not the immediate cause of Pharaoh's sins. And that's important to point out. This is how God works through secondary causes. Is God in control of evil? Yes. We've we've talked about this. We've pointed to the cross. The cross, I mean, that was evil. That's the innocent Son of God being crucified, that's evil. Did God ordain that? Is he in charge of that? Yeah. Does that mean God is responsible for evil? Well, no, because he uses secondary causes. The scribes, the Pharisees, Pilate, they acted of their own will. They did evil. God still ordained it and brought it about through his sovereignty, but he is withheld from evil. He, he did not do evil. Likewise, Pharaoh... God did not make him do anything. He acted according to his own sinful desires and the hardness of his heart. And God brought this all about through secondary causes, namely Pharaoh's own will. God could have intervened. He could have, hey, saved Pharaoh, converted Pharaoh right then and there and and changed his heart. But he, he didn't. He had the power, but he didn't. And in not choosing to do so, God was using Pharaoh as an object of his wrath. So that he could be magnified through Pharaoh and through his deeds. But remember, remember, Pharaoh only got what he deserved per his own sin. God was not unjust with him. He was not unfair. He was perfectly just and perfectly fair with Pharaoh because he was wicked and evil. And he would, would get the judgment that he was due. And God is under no obligation to intervene and change anybody. So, the first point. How, how does God... Pardon the hearts of the wicked, of those he passes over, sealing them in their unbelief that they would not cry out to be saved. First, it, by just handing them over to their sin, by withholding his restraining grace, this common grace that he gives in a measure to mankind, but is free to withhold. Secondly, by withholding illumination, by withholding illumination, in conjunction with turning over people to their sinful desires. God withholds the light of the truth from them. It's just a byproduct of their spiritual darkness. God doesn't place them in darkness. They're already in darkness. He merely, and and the light shines, he lets the light shine in the darkness, but there's a veil over their eyes and God merely doesn't lift the veil. This is how he hardens people. You see how he's not actually actively doing anything because he doesn't need to. They're already in darkness, there already is a veil over their eyes. The light is there, the light is shining, but they can't see and be saved because the veil remains over their eyes until God lifts it. And if he doesn't, then they won't see and be saved. Joe? Mm-hmm. Just in time, and God God showed them the light just in time. So turn to Matthew 11, a few verses to show you this, God withholding illumination. Matthew 11, I'll read as you're turning John 12, that passage you have there, 39 through 40. It speaks of those who weren't believing Jesus, and John explains, why, why don't they believe in Jesus? And it says, for this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, that God has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This is just a fact of scripture that it was part of God's plan for Israel to reject their Messiah and not be saved. Right? I mean, can you, can you really dispute that? That was part of his plan. I, I trust that's super clear in scripture and that's Romans 9 through 11. That's what he's explaining. In fact, well, how, how did Paul do, or how did God do that? He didn't make Israel unbelieving. Christ, their Messiah, was there. He just didn't lift the veil from their eyes, and they acted accordingly in their own sin, in their own unbelief, their own rebellion. It's part of God's plan that He would be magnified, but this is how He does it. Matthew eleven, I need to turn there as well, and Matthew thirteen, pair verses that teach the same thing. Matthew eleven twenty five. Again, he's, exp- he's talking about how those, explaining how those don't believe after the, the unrepenting cities beside in. they don't believe. Verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. In the verse we studied, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Can you escape this? Christ praising God that he's hidden the truth from the spiritually proud, from the wicked, and yet revealing it to the humble, to the the spiritual infants, so to speak. This is, this is God's prerogative to show mercy on whom he wants. Verse 26 is well-pleasing in your sight. This is what, what God designed to do for his glory. That he is glorified by vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And, and so it goes. And if you flip the page of Matthew 13, very similar. Where Christ teaches in parables. And the disciples, they want to know why. Like, why do you speak in parables? Because if you know about parables, I mean, I mean, they're sort of clear, but they're also super cryptic at times. Like, you know, and you left your one left leaves you wondering, oh, what, what does he mean? What's he teaching? I don't I don't quite get it. And that's actually by design. And Christ answers why he teaches in parables. Because parables are amazing truths that are designed to conceal truth and reveal truth at the same time. To those with ears to hear, parables reveal. Deep truths about God. But to those who do not have ears, parables actually conceal truth about God that that they would not know of the deeper truths of God. So look at verse 10, Matthew 13 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. See the verbiage of of granting here? It's up to God. Verse 12, For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. Israel, look, it's God unfair. He gave them the law, the covenants, the promises, the fathers. I mean, they had scripture. Theirs was the Messiah, yet they still didn't believe. What God gave them everything. And in their own rebellion, they didn't believe. And so, and, and, and having the little they had, it will be taken away from them. And they will just be judged because that's what they deserve. And God, in his will, would not lift the veil at this time, per his plan. Now, side note, back in Romans 11, Paul mentions how, hey, later, actually God will lift the veil and all Israel will be saved. But for now, he won't. And such is Israel's national hardening. It's Romans 9 through 11. In fact, just listen. 2 Corinthians 3.14 in your notes, it says, Paul talks about Israel. He says, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. And he talks about how the veil is over their eyes and they can't see Christ and be saved until God opens their eyes and lifts the veil. And so it goes. So this is how God effectively hardens the wicked by withholding his restraining grace, by withholding his illumining light. He doesn't actually act, actually have to actively do anything to them, but merely leave them in their sin and their rebellion, take away his common grace, and they will harden themselves, sealing their own doom and destruction and fitting God's plan nonetheless. So what have we learned so far? Well, it's true. Some are passed over. Some are not chosen for salvation. This is reprobation. These people are, in effect, hardened in their sin and unbelief by God himself and sealed in their doom. But we've learned that God does not actively harden them. He doesn't have to. He doesn't make them evil. He doesn't make them do evil. They already are. The unelect, they don't start out good, but they're already found evil by God. And reprobation, then, concerns God's decision is not to intervene, to leave them as they are, to pass over them, and leave them to the just penalty of their sin. Perfectly fair, perfectly just. Now, already you should be able to tell that the way God elects people, though, there's differences from the way he elects and the way he passes over. One seems active, one seems passive. They're not not quite parallel. There are differences between God's choice of election and this choice of reprobation and these differences they're further highlighted in the rest of Romans 9 that we didn't get to and we won't get to we'll come back next week I was going to try and jam it on here I'm glad I didn't because we're uh, literally out of time but there, there's more to be said there's another layer here of reprobation there's another level of understanding that we want to keep going because we actually didn't finish Romans 9 we stopped at verse. 17 or 18 but that's okay we'll come back next week reprobation it's heavy stuff right this is this is spiritual stake this isn't like light teaching it's pretty heavy stuff this is you know some some meaty theology and doctrine here of what the bible says about the unelect it's a very serious and for some contentious topic so we'll do well to stop here gives you enough food for thought just hey ponder these things go back over your notes and some of these verses, well scripture is clear on it, but there's more to be said and we will come back and take it and drill down one more layer next week. It's just by way of a final quick preview, you've heard of something maybe called double predestination. And we'll talk about that next time. Something we don't believe. Some Calvinists do, like Martin Luther believed it, but we don't. So well, what does it mean? And talking about it helps us get a better understanding of reprobation, how God does pass over the unelect. And it, it's important stuff. Seeing such an important issue, it's worth our time. So we'll come back next week, and we'll finish this topic of reprobation uh, then. All right. Let's bow in a word of prayer for our time tonight. Our great God, our gracious God, we marvel at your word and your will. We know we're, we're peering into some deeper truths and even scripture itself, though not all in parables, it comes with that same principle that to some it, it reveals truth, to some the truth is concealed. Per your will and by your design, Lord, the light shines, but if you don't open our eyes, give us new hearts, take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. If you don't do this, Lord, we, we can't see so as to be saved. We're enslaved to sin and Satan and unless you grant repentance and grant us to knowledge of the truth we will not be saved so we ponder our own salvation and thank you that you had mercy on us uh, that we were undeserving sinners deserving a just punishment penalty but you 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 uh, you chose us lord and called us in time and we we thank you for that and, and praise you tonight and i pray we can as we reflect on that although it can be hard to ponder how some are passed over May we, like Job's at a point, just put our hand over our mouth and confess your, your majesty. Your ways are higher than our ways and, and just worship a God who is perfectly just, yet perfectly loving. And for us as objects of, of mercy, well, well, we'll praise you for this mercy. Not take for granted our salvation, knowing it came at a high price, but thanking you and praising you all the while. Give us more truth, Lord. We pray you don't close our eyes, open our eyes. We want to know the truth, So keep us humble before your word, and and, may we come back next time learning even more about your, your truth and your salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.